You are listening to the 2022 Air and Space Power Conference, brought to you by the Royal Australian Air Force's Air and Space Power Centre. In this presentation, Mr James Brown, Mr Enrico Palermo, Air Vice Marshal Kath Roberts, Air Commodore Nicholas Hogan and Mr Adam Gilmore contributes with their discussion on space as part of a military and national power. We join the presentation as it is introduced to the conference attendees. Well, good morning, everybody. I am uh, the Director General of Space Capability, Air Commodore Nick Hogan, and I have four wonderful Australians that are coming up on the stage right now to discuss um, our next panel, which is resilience and innovation uh, in direct relation to space. The person directly to my right, your left, well, actually, I guess it depends. Oh, no, it's definitely your left. Uh, Air Vice Marshal Kath Roberts uh, needs no introduction. I think she's probably the second most named person at this conference uh, this week. Um, but to her right, Enrico Palermo, who is the head of the Australian Space Agency, you may have seen him just previously on the screen. Uh, to his right, you've got Mr Adam Gilmore, Australia's Elon Musk, maybe, <clears throat> who also we saw up on the, uh, on the screen there. And of course, to his right, Mr James Brown, who is the CEO of the Space Industry Association of Australia. We have about 40 minutes for this panel before we've got to uh, get out of here. But I was talking to Air Vice Marshal Goldie following the, uh, the dinner last night. And for those esteemed guests that uh, were following the sport discussion, let's just describe this as we're in the bottom of the ninth, we're three majors down, two have slipped through to the keeper, and uh, the point guards missed a couple and we're 24, 24 yards out and we're on the fifth down. I think that would make sense to most people in the audience, especially Air Vice Marshal Goldie. All right, so uh, let's just open up with a warm-up question for the panel. Uh, and this question is for everyone, starting with Air Vice Marshal Roberts. I hear a lot about the impact of a loss of space, but what does it actually mean for the Indo-Pacific region? Ma'am. Yeah, I think um, you know, we're obviously in the Indo-Pacific region, and, and for us, um, General Raymond's really covered it, you know, Australians' uh, way of life relies on space, as do our military operations. So in the Indo-Pacific, we've really got to make sure that we've got the services that we need to be able to operate both militarily and to actually support our, our way of life. And I think the, the number of things that are happening in terms of grey zone type activities in our region, or, you know, space isn't just about a region. It, all the satellites go around the world, right? So um, it, it really isn't just about our region, it's about the whole of the earth. Um, and we need to protect the, those things that provide services to us. But I think Enrico will have a, a view as well. Uh, thanks, uh, Kath. Um, I mean, <clears throat> I think General Raymond said it, there isn't one aspect of, of modern day life that doesn't uh, rely on space technology in one way or another. So, you know, depending on how catastrophic the loss is, it, it would be chaos and could be catastrophic. Uh, for the region. I mean, recent events in Tonga demonstrated the need for space communications uh, when, when you've got uh, domestic assets like cables that, that can be severed in events like that or, or, or by other means. And so, um, uh, you know, I think the headline is the, the importance is there. It's why we need to invest. It's why, as a nation, uh, we need to develop capability. And, and I think um, the Chief of the Air Force said it well last year, last, uh, yesterday. We need to be a contributor, not just a consumer of space technologies, and that allows us to support the region uh, for the things they need, um, whether it's space technology, whether it's uh, data analysis through the likes of the work that uh, Geoscience Australia does with Digital Earth and their Data Cube technologies. Um, those things are, are needed in the region um, for, for all aspects. Adam? Well, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna tell a story. So, quick oh, one. Adam. A quick one, quick one. <laughs> who uses cash and who uses this? 
put your hand up to card, pay wave, right? If satellites get knocked out, that doesn't work. And then what are you gonna do? You're gonna go to the nearest bank, and then you're gonna get on your phone, you're gonna look for where that is, but that doesn't work either. So you're gonna ask people, you'll eventually get to the bank, and then you'll try to use this in the ATM and that won't work either. And, and that's just the beginning of a bad day. You can't get Uber anymore. Um, whoever makes the maps, you know, I'm, getting, I'm old enough to know in the old days before this you had maps that you kind of pulled over on the side of the road. So whoever makes those will go into fast supply. And then if you look at supply chains, financial markets, you know, anarchy. It's very, very important we protect space. Wonderful story. Very dark story, though, Adam. Very dark. <laughs> James? I feel like I've got to bring the light now. But um, <laughs> look, it's, it's a bad day at work for all of us. Uh, last year, uh, I joined a call run by our Department of Home Affairs through something called the National Coordination Mechanism, which was looking at exactly this question. What do we lose if we lose space? Mm -hmm. And the answer is anything that relies on a synchronised network, which is almost everything that we rely on, including uh, my children's iPads. So. Um, the question we've been asking people in the broader economy is, who is your chief space officer? Who is thinking about this question of what are our choke points on space? What are we dependent on space for? As well as all the good stuff, all the opportunities. And it's surprising how few companies have actually thought about that question. And when they start to do a stock take on all the things that they need each day from or in space to do business with, it's pretty shocking. So. I think we're going on a similar journey now. Five years ago, we asked, what if you lose connection to your cyber systems? Now we're starting to go on that journey with space as well. Sounds like something to do with uh, national critical infrastructure, which might lead me to my next question. So this one is for Air Vice Master Roberts. Why is, the, why is now the right time for Defence Space Command? I think, well, General Raymond answered that question too. So, um, look, look, we have, uh, we've realised the criticality of space. And, um, you know, as James mentioned, the industry reliance on space, as Adam's mentioned, you know, society's reliance on space. And we really haven't had a significant capability contribution in the past. So, we are really now, uh, you know, taking a look at what the critical infrastructure is across all of Australia, both industry and for defence what we need to protect um, and what relies on space so that we can actually field capabilities that can assure our access to space. So it's part of our capability architecture work as well too, but just having people understand our reliance on space and having us understand, you know, SkyMuster is a critical satellite that we rely on for our NBN, so it's one of the things that we need to protect. Um, we haven't done that work and we need to and, and that's what we are, are getting after with our capability architecture and I think you know, working really closely with industry so that industry also understand what they're relying on uh, in terms of services from space. Okay. Um, and just for the audience and those online, if you want to throw your questions into event, uh, it'll pop up on the screen in front of us and they're, if they're better questions than mine, then I'll uh, certainly ask those. So there's the challenge that's out there for you. So I'll start this one. This will be a, a question for all the panel members. Sounds like I'm uh, introducing a quiz show here. Um, I'll ask AVM Roberts to lead the response, but then I'll throw to the panel. So what is Australian space enterprises value proposition to other nations in our region, such as the Pacific Island nations that do not have the current capacity to be space-faring nations, but still heavily rely on space-based technologies? 
Look, Australia offers the unique advantages of geography, which General Raymond mentioned as well too, in terms of what we can see in space. Um, our space situational awareness is, is really important. But I think in terms of our Pacific nations and their neighbours, we need to be able to contribute information to them. And, and one of the things that we're doing with the, um, with the Australian Space Agency is looking at how we can actually do a national mission where we have um, civilian data, for example, for Earth observation that would allow us to um, be able to share information on things like um, yeah, volcanoes erupting um, and humanitarian assistance disaster relief in our region and be able to share that information with our allies. So, you know, the, 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 the data, the unclassified data is really where we're trying to get to in terms of being able to provide um, you know, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, Earth observation, um, to be able to share that with our regional partners as well too. And, and that's something that we do really closely in conjunction with the Space Agency. It's not necessarily just a defence mission. So with that, I'll just hand over to Enrico. Yeah, I mean, Earth observation is, is a key priority for the Civil uh, Space Agency here in Australia. And we issued our roadmap uh, in November last year, which contemplates uh, national missions of significant that can deliver Earth observation data uh, both for Australia and the region. But uh, stepping off um, Air Vice Marshal Roberts' comments, because of our geography, we have uh, an industry that's building uh, great technologies using uh, the Internet of Things from space, uh, communication constellations. And if you think of a, small, a smaller island nation uh, in the region, it's really hard for them to make the business case to, to launch a constellation that's going to give them persistence. Uh, IoT delivery, comms delivery. So I really see our civil sector, and we have great companies like Mariota uh, and Fleet, uh, really being able to bring that 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 benefit you get from that uh, constellation delivery of, of services to a smaller nation that otherwise wouldn't afford it. So I think that's uh, very critical. I already touched on the role uh, Geoscience Australia will play as well uh, in terms of uh, sharing and analysing uh, Earth observation data for for applications. Adam. Well, I mean, we obviously want to launch everybody's payloads, but I think good points made um, about when you put a satellite up, it goes over the whole world. And I think my experience with the space uh, industry has been really good in terms of looking out of the Asia-Pacific. Japan's really good at this. They put satellites up that have fantastic uses for land management, water management, etc. And I'd like to see Australia do something similar to that to, to kind of burden share on that side of things. Um, I think that's what we can do. Yeah. James? I look beyond some of the, the great projects that we could do that we've talked about here and, and others that we haven't, including things like AquaWatch, which is a CSIRO program um, designed to help uh, countries monitor salinity in their water and the quality of their freshwater sources. I think the other thing we have to offer to the region is talent for space. So um, yeah, we, we are rebooting Australia's space industry at the moment after a period of 30 years when we, we were fairly quiet. But despite that, um, for the last decade, Australian scientists and researchers have consistently produced um, amongst the, the top 10% of most cited papers in space internationally. Mm -hmm. So we've got this phenomenal reservoir of talent and expertise here on space. We've got a great workforce. We're graduating engineers. We've got more universities producing space-ready engineers every year. And that's going to be, I think, really useful to the region, to, to countries that you know, don't have that, that kind of pipeline as well. 
If I could just sort of add to that, that Miriota product that I mentioned in the video, which essentially is, is tiny, the size of almost a credit card, uh, if you don't ruggedise it, you know, that's something that we could share with our regional neighbours right now, um, you know, for them to be able to monitor their weather um, from anywhere. And, you know, it's 20 bucks. It's cheap. Um, so it is a really interesting capability. Obviously, the system that allows you to visualise it is perhaps a bit more, but, you know, an absolutely amazing development that we've got here that we'll be able to use and, and share with all of our regional partners. And, um, and, and we could do that now if we if we set up a, a system to be able to do it. So some great tech coming out of Australia as well. And there was an interesting comment about the workforce uh, there, James, in terms of uh, there was a discussion for about secondments into industry. Uh, did you want to make a comment about that at all, uh, Adam, in particular? Adam's going to let us come and work with him. Yeah, I think it's a, I'd like to hear the generals from the US talk about this, because I think it's really important that the space command people for sure come and work in industry. I mean, we're at the cutting edge. Um, and I think what is quite unique about space companies is things stuff up every day. So, you know, one of the things that I think makes engineers strong is they see things break. They think, okay, how do I fix it? You know, what's a redesign? I think that's a critical tool for anybody that's in the space command. And so, you know, you get to see team building, you get to see resilience. You know, you talk about resilience, if you want to you know, see resilience, start a rocket company in Australia. Seven years ago, before there's a space agency, that's resilience, <laughs> right? So I think it's really important. We welcome, we have some ex-Air Force people in our company, and I think they're fantastic. Like, they're well-trained. Uh, and then we'd like to kind of train them up on the tech and on how to use space, how do orbits work, you know, what is possible, what is theoretically possible with physics and what isn't possible, things like that. Uh, don't worry, sir, we've got a plan under the total workforce system to bring them back in. We just haven't told Adam, it's all, it's all good, it's coming around at some point. <laughs> uh, the title of the panel is Resilience and Innovation in Space, and this question is for everyone. And I'll start off with Air Vice Marshal Roberts. Framed against resilience and innovation, what does resilience and innovation mean in your respective areas, and why is space different to the other domains? Um, so, you know, resilience to me in space means mass and, and duplication of, of and, and being cheap uh, or relatively cheap. Um, why is it different than the other domains? Because we've got to accept failure over and over again. We've got to actually be able to innovate, as, uh, as Adam mentioned about, you know, his engineers understanding failure. It's a different risk profile. Um, we need to be able to accept that, that things will fail and in which case they can't be replaced and so we or they can be replaced, but at a great cost. So it's a completely different capability design system. It's a completely different acquisition system, I think, from my perspective. Um, and for us to be resilient, we've got to also work really closely with um, all of the agencies across whole of government, you know, from Geoscience Australia, CSIRO, that are doing all of the other activities so that we can actually make Australia resilient as well too. It's not just a military uh, line of effort. So it, it, it will be different. Um, we will have to take different risk profiles um, and we will have to accept that quite a few of our things will fail. Um, my first satellite launch failed, uh, M M1 failed. Uh, so we sent up a second one to make sure we could get comms and we actually did the mission on the third. That's the sort of, um, that's the sort of uh, system that we'll be using to evaluate our technology and it needs to be cheap and uh, cheap enough that we can accept that it fails and that we need to do additional missions to develop our capability. And that's, um, that's not something that we would have done in the past. We would have set requirements and just 
you know, set requirements, given them to industry, have industry deliver. We, we can't follow that process anymore. We've got to be right together from the start and we've got to accept failure. Enrico? Resilience for me is, is, is not necessarily we have to do everything in space. You know, we have uh, very important uh, international partnerships uh, and there'll be commercial entities that will, will do it better than, than government and that, that's being proven out. But I think it goes back to that, that message of today, uh, Australia is, is very much a consumer of space technology and, and by being a contributor in a meaningful way uh, and, and as we design national missions together, we're looking at this um, very closely, that makes us an indispensable partner. When, when we need access to a particular service uh, or technology. Um, from the agency's perspective, one of our important things is building supply chains in Australia. And I think that's an important part of resilience. And we will develop a, a vibrant sector. We have seven priority areas in Australia, and we want to have a vibrant, diverse sector across all of these priority areas, uh, including launch, because what that will develop is a local supply chain. So in a moment of need, if, we, if for whatever reason, we need to be, assemble PCB boards, we need to friction stir well. We talked about that when, when I visited uh, Adam's facility last year. If we need to filament wind, if we need to be able to do the analytics on a ballistic, if we need to cast rocket fuel, you can't turn those activities overnight. So the, the government needs to have uh, na record, uh, national missions of record, uh, they have procurement, uh, act as an anchor customer, so you have that ecosystem designing, developing, launching, operating, so you can pivot, uh, pivot quickly to, to opportunities that they need it. Um, innovation for me is, is the full life cycle, um, you know, so you get a, a capability at the end, and, and I'd, I'd echo exactly what um, Kath said, you have to embrace failure and risk uh, as part of that, um, and, and I think the commercial sector has developed that, and we're gonna face those challenges. I don't think yet we've done enough of a job in Australia having the community understand that, you know, when our first rocket launches go off, they're probably not going to be successful if you look at historical rates. So the first one wasn't. It wasn't, right? And that's not a failure. That's actually, that's, that's a win, right? You learn so much in the day you fail. So that embracement of failure. In terms of the difference of other domains that this one's changing is, as you think about the traditional domains, safety of flight or safety of navigation in space is very different. Today, you, you can't refuel, you can't return to base can't often maneuver your asset or your object. And so how you approach that is very differently. And I'd say the other thing is you start in, all, in an autonomous world with space versus the other way. Um, so there, there's some observations for me. Thanks. I'm gonna talk about innovation first. And I was thinking about this a lot yesterday and I've got uh, four words, dream it and then build it. Dream it and then build it. That's, that's what I think. That's how we roll, and I think that's how you can get stuff done fast. I also think it's been talked about before, we have to do it a lot faster than we've done it. Uh, I definitely paid attention. I'm sorry I'm going to stuff his name up. General, is it Hyten? Yeah. Yep. Yep. He, just as before he left, he wrote a paper saying, you know, liberal democracies have to get so much better at making technology faster I think it's the biggest challenge we face of all challenges. If we don't develop technology quicker, our enemies are going to beat us at the technology. You know, I'll give you an example. Um, I mean, I heard, I was very happy to hear Loyal Wingman yesterday from clean sheet to first flight, three years, fantastic. Ghostbat? <clears throat> yep. Sorry, Ghostbat. Um, our launch vehicle from clean sheet to our first flight will be under three years. I'm disappointed in that. I want to do it in two years. I think the next one we do will be two years. I think that's the mindset we have to have 
between industry and defence for sure of when you're doing technology, let's not look at 10, 20 year projects. Let's try to set really challenging objectives, even if you fail. I mean, look at Elon Musk, right? He's always saying, I think he said he was going to Mars in 2022 and 2018. If he does it in 2026, it's still fantastic. But we have to set very challenging objectives for developing tech. And that's what I think innovation is all about. Do we have the slides that we can just, uh, there was a PowerPoint slide I think we had hiding there just to talk about. If it doesn't come up, I'm going to flick to you, James. So we'll go to James. Okay. Look, I, I want to echo uh, Enrico's point about supply chain resilience. That's so important for us at the moment. Uh, we are seeing delays in components for some of the companies that you saw profiled in that video of up to 12 months at the moment, which makes delivering capability really hard. The faster we can get our own supply chains, the better it's going to be. I'd add a couple other points to resilience from an industry perspective. Um, looking at the defence space strategy yesterday, it is stunning to see that, you know, that figure of $17 billion of investment, but uh, as an industry, we can't rely on defence as our only customer. So resilience for us is about building out a broader customer base, both government, non-government, um, civilian and defence, and international. So we're taking a delegation of 70 different companies to the space symposium in Colorado Springs in a fortnight's time. The reason for that is to build out our customer base in the US and internationally. Um, we've, we've launched a bid to bring the International Astronautical Congress back to Sydney in 2025 to showcase how much has happened here since we last hosted it in Adelaide. Uh, and that's about building a bigger international customer base. Adam's looking at international customers as well. So that's critical for us in terms of resilience. There's a question that's out in the audience here. Uh, Mike B, I won't call you out specifically. It says for the panel, given the centrality of space, do we, defence, uh, with a C and an S, so uh, quite broad in, in terms of approach, and government need to do an experiment series of day without space? Hmm. Ma'am? Uh, uh, yes. Yes, that would be good. And look, I think we are trying to do that already across whole of government. Um, and, uh, and we do plan to run a whole of government exercise to do a day without space. That, that piece on education is really important. And, and it's something that um, I think everyone in the space industry and in defence needs to be able to talk about, um, you know, what does a day without space look like? And, you know, it, it isn't well understood, I don't think, and, and, the, um, and the threats to uh, our space-based services are not well understood, and we, we need to make sure that across, as it's across whole of government, it's not just defence, across whole of government, they understand the implications of a day without space. Um, there's, a, there's a bit of education on that that, that we do, and certainly, um, and certainly Enrico does, um, and has a very similar line of effort for the Australian Space Agency. Yeah, I think it's a, it, we need to do it and no, there, is, there is plans uh, in work. Um, we've identified in our, in our strategic plan for this year is we need to bring space to the nation more. Um, again, we, you know, here's a captive audience that will all nod and say space is critical, space is essential, we need to invest in space. Uh, that, that, that doesn't extend very far outside this room yet. And as a civil agency, we have a critical role to not just inspire, but, but inform uh, with, with uh, Space Command on that criticality. Matt C's put up a, uh, a question. Could space resilience mean diversity away from space-reliant capabilities? Uh, what do you reckon there, James? I'll start James and I'll come back this way. Sure, I mean, we're, and, and we're looking at what kind of mix of assets you need for delivering the capability you need, right? So high altitude pseudo satellites are one way of making sure that you can deliver the same effect without, um, you know, without, without a LEO constellation being available to you or if it's denied or degraded. 
um, when we're looking at the different kind of constellations that Australia needs to put up. We're looking at the mix of LEO, MEO, GEO, both from a defence perspective and a, and an, a civilian industry perspective as well. Um, but look, the first step, as you've heard from, from Catherine and Rico, is making sure that people are aware of this. And I think we're really lucky that we've got, you know, I think of Kath and Rico as the, as the good cop and the bad cop of Australian space. They're, they're Who's the bad cop? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to you to work out who's, who's who. Um, but, but reminding people of the risks and what could go wrong, but also the opportunity as well, uh, is, is so important in building that awareness. Adam? I just add politicians are very important. I think we've done a lot of work in our company to explain to politicians how important space is. And, you know, they're the ones that are kind of holding all the purse strings to everything. So I think, you know, the public for sure, but you've got to let the politicians know about how important space is. And I think in Australia, they're, they're getting it now. Enrico? I think the House of Reps, uh, so um, for her international partners last year, uh, the government uh, House of Representatives ran an inquiry into the development of the Australian space sector. And I think that, which now has been published, they've had their final report, had 38 recommendations, and it had a great title. It was the now frontier. Space is the now frontier, not, not the future frontier. I had 38 recommendations, bipartisan recommendations, which I think uh, are very good. Uh, we're working on a, on a response uh, for government to that. But I think that brought a lot of awareness uh, across, across government. Now it's how we, how we go implement those recommendations. What about from an operational perspective, ma'am? Um, from an operational perspective... About uh, diversifying outside of space for space-reliant capabilities. Sure. Look, I mean, you've always got to look at what is best done in which domain. And, um, and uh, you can't just rely on space, obviously. And, you know, P&T, our insured P&T solutions may not be space. Um, there are other ways of achieving that. So you've really got to look at what domain achieves the right effect. And, you know, and the Chief well knows, and I'm looking very closely at the air domain to see whether or not I can take over a number of projects there where I think that space will deliver them better. Um, be bold, be bold, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, but, you know, you, you need to understand the risks of space, but you also need to be able to, to make sure that you are thinking about the other domains. And, and perhaps is one example about how you can do things um, uh, quickly and, and hopefully when Adam's rockets uh, fly up every two weeks, I think I've asked you to do, um, then, uh, then you know, we'll be able to actually um, resupply into space and, and actually replace our constellations when we need to. I think that's, that's important that we understand that, and, and they are temporary, satellites are fairly temporary anyway, they're not, you know, 35 year projects unless, uh, unless something went wrong with something in GEO. So. This is a question from Emily H. Uh, what is the role of modelling, simulation and analysis to grow the space capability in Australia to prioritise decision making? Um, you know, we, so what we're doing in terms of capability design is uh, we will use digital twin type capability to be able to do all of our modelling and, and simulation um, so that we can understand how that architecture might work. Um, it, it isn't, it is, it is advanced in terms of designing assets. It's not advanced in terms of designing architectures. And, and that's where we're working really closely um, with the US, um, our US colleagues as well too, because of, they've done um, some detailed analytics in terms of architecture design, which is done uh, in, a, in a digital way. Um, so I think that, that you know, certainly the assets we can design um, using digital twins, modelling, digital technology, and, and all our satellites so far have had that. So M2, the uh, one that we did with University of New South Wales, certainly using that technology. Um, we've got to get a little bit better at, at using that into the architecture with the complexities that that brings. 
Um, but I'm, I'm more interested in the question down there uh, is how will Space Command protect Australia's interests beyond geo onto the moon and beyond? Um, yes, we will. Um, you know, as, as with the Space Agency, it's not just about Earth. We are looking further beyond that. Um, you know, I've got a poster in my office from 1984 with a couple of uh, starfighters that have got Space Command written on them. I'm not saying that that's exactly where we're going, but we were thinking that back then. Space is more than the Earth. Um, we're already looking at what we need to do for the Moon, um, and we're already looking at what we need to do for Moon to Mars. And it's something that we need to we need to be thinking of now, not not in uh, not in ten years' time. One of our um, consortiums of members is looking at how we develop lunar comms, and they're looking at a solution for that for lunar comms. That's obviously going to help um, in defending our interests out out beyond uh, and and out into cislunar space. So uh, it's a really good question. We've got to think very broadly when it comes to protection from and in space. Well, we have a Moon to Mars mission, or we're part of that, right, Enrico? Do you want to make comment on that? Yeah, I'd be happy to, happy to talk about it. So Moon to Mars is one of our, our flagship programs. There's three elements, our supply chain, uh, again, that, 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 that mode of getting Australian companies into international supply chains, building supply chains here. Uh, demonstrator, uh, which uh, we, uh, we are, applications are open, which will see Australian um, hardware going to orbit uh, and potentially to the moon uh, to, to accelerate uh, techno technology readiness life cycles for, for lunar uh, or related technologies. And then we have a trailblazer program. And so last October, we signed a, a Space Act agreement with NASA, which will see an Aussie designed, built, um, designed and built rover uh, go to the moon. Uh, aboard a NASA launch uh, with, a, with a very spe specific mission. This is our first uh, lunar mission um, for Australia as a government. Uh, it's alongside actually some commercial missions uh, for, for, for lunar as well. And uh, the, the rover will uh, collect some regolith. Uh, we'll take it to a, a NASA plant to extract oxygen uh, as an experiment. And so it's a first step. Uh, we actually, I, I can't talk much about it because we, uh, we had applications closed two weeks ago and we've had some uh, terrific applications in and our team is going through the panel, panel assessments right now. But uh, this is a first step of uh, us uh, continuing and strengthening the partnership we've had with NASA uh, for a long time. Um, you know, NASA has, has invited us to, to look at uh, you know, the, the Artemis architecture and where and other nations, where might we plug in, in into the future? So that's really just the beginning, I think, of what you'll see us do uh, in uh, further exploration. Hey, uh, Adam, seeing the uh, PowerPoint's up. Yeah. Oh, was. So this is our launch vehicle, our first orbital launch vehicle that we're putting together right now. Uh, we build this up on the Gold Coast, so if anybody wants to visit it, visit us. It's a really nice place to go surfing and stuff as well. A lot of key technologies in here. I mean, what you can see here from the left-hand side to the right-hand side is the fairing that goes around the hybrid rocket motors. And you can see some of the hybrid rocket motors, they're filament-wound um, composite pressure vessels. They take about uh, 50 atmospheres when they're working. Uh, then we've got the first stage oxidizer tank. So one of the unique things about our launch vehicles, we have room temperature storable fuels. So, you know, this elusive, quest for tactically responsive space. We think if we have the satellite ready to rock and roll, we can probably launch with three hours of notice. I know that's a big call, but I think we can do it. Um, then we have an interstage separation mechanism, the second stage tank, and the payload fairing. Don't think the other slide came up, but we are um, in qualification testing of everything that goes on this launch vehicle, including all of our avionics systems, all of our guidance, navigation, and control software, the, um, the software that manages the robotic systems of the rocket, 
we're in the middle of a qualification uh, session of our engines. I think one of those engines, the one that's right there is getting tested today, I hope it is, but we're a rocket company so it might be tomorrow. But this just demonstrates that, you know, even though the Space Force has just been set up, Space Command, I'm thinking into the future, um, you know, we started a while back and, you know, we're not far away from getting to space. How much of that's uh, Australian built? So we have, uh, I'm glad you talked about supply chain. We have about 400 um, companies in our supply chain. About 100 of them are overseas. I talked to some of the people in the audience about that yesterday. Uh, but a big whack of this is Australian. I'd say probably 70% of this is manufactured in Australia, maybe even 80% actually. We've used a lot of the suppliers that are making stuff for other defence uh, products like the F-35, for example. People that make stuff for the F-35 are now making stuff for our rocket. That's, that's quite cool. Thank you. No, no more crying for the slide. Uh, a question for Enrico with an open invite for the other panel members. Uh, the Australian government recently announced $65 million for the development of sovereign space tech and then $32 million toward launch sites. What does that practically mean for Australia and what does it mean for our international partners? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so about three weeks ago, the Prime Minister and Minister Price, who is our Minister for Defence Industry and Minister for Science and Technology, announced what we call the Fast Tracking Access to Space measure. It's a $65 million measure um, that has four key components, and I'll step through them briefly and answer the question of, of what it means for Australia and what it, what it means for international partners. Um, so the first measure is, is co-investments in spaceports around Australia. Uh, we're seeing uh, several entities, several states and territories interested to use um, and leverage Australia's uh, geography, um, our climate, um, our geopolitical climate. You know, uh, we're, you know, we're a country that can protect uh, sensitive uh, technologies to develop spaceports. And so much like you've seen in the US and others, this is a, a co-investment infrastructure really to enable launch uh, in the country. Why are we doing that? What does it practically mean? Um, launch is the one thing that, that can open up the full value chain of space activities uh, for the nation. And, and, and Adam, will, I'm sure, will be glad to, to talk uh, more to that after me. So that, that's practically what it means. Uh, internationally, we can offer an alternate site as uh, ranges uh, fill up um, and, and exceed their demand or, or perhaps are, are taken out by weather or other, other forms so we can provide resiliency to that, that launch network uh, internationally. Uh, the second measure is um, uh, we're going we're gonna to procure space flights as the space agency. So for those familiar with flight opportunities or venture class launch services in the United States, model on those programs around getting uh, Australian uh, technology through the technology uh, life cycle uh, better. So we'll be looking at, at uh, suborbital flights, microgravity flights, orbital launches, potentially lunar missions uh, through that program uh, into the future to accelerate uh, TRL for, for Australian companies. I think there'll be opportunities we'll procure from domestic and international depending uh, on, the, um, on the flights. Uh, the third is uh, we've been asked to work on regulations for human spaceflight in Australia. Today there isn't a regulatory framework to fly humans into space. Uh, practically what this means, it gives Australia an opportunity to be a regional hub uh, for human spaceflight but also to be a location where we can accept returns um, from other nations as point-to-point -point and other vehicles uh, are developed. So we're really excited uh, to go after that. Uh, and then the fourth one, uh, which is uh, very exciting, is, is the uh, Australian government has asked the agency to begin uh, preliminary um, discussions and, and negotiations with the international space agencies and developing an Australian, a future Australian astronaut program. 
Now, we're going to be very uh, careful and, and thoughtful about that. You know, we could go buy tickets to space today and, and fly Australians to space, but if I go back to our purpose about building this sector and, and benefiting all Australians, what we're going to be looking to do is how can Australia contribute meaningfully to international uh, space exploration, space science missions, and in return, in barter, um, get, get opportunities for Australians uh, to fly. And so practically that means uh, very inspiring for the nation. Uh, so professionals, uh, people growing up today know that the government is starting to think about and seriously consider an astronaut program. So it's, it's quite a, a well-targeted set of measures and, and uh, we're working on guidelines and can't wait to, to kick all of them off. Talk about inspiring nation. Uh, my son latched straight onto that astronaut thing. He's like, all right, all right he's, he's a little bit older than seven though, sir. So. Um, but anyway, uh, do you want to make a comment on that, James, before I go to Adam? Is that about his enthusiasm to be an astronaut? Oh, no, get not out about of your house. Sorry, yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I mean, uh, sorry, what was the question again? The, it was about the... The, the launch and the... Yeah, about yeah. all of the uh, initiatives the government's announced and what does that mean for us? Yeah, look, it, I mean, what it means for us is that we're seeing some really clear signposts from government now around what's important and where they think the potential areas for Australia's sweet spot of space industry are. Um, that's really important. It's just as important, I think, in the coming months as we go on the journey of developing the space strategic update to identify what Australia won't do. We are small. Small is beautiful. It means that um, you know, we can, we can make things happen very quickly because the personality is known to each other. Um, you can literally get all the key decision makers on space in Australia in a room very quickly mm. uh, and, you can, and you can do that. Um, but it means we can't do everything. So um, launch, clearly because of our geography, is going to be important. Space situational awareness, space domain awareness, clearly because of our geography and our alliances is going to be important. Um, so that partly that's you know the government signalling, but that's going to come from allies and, and partners as well. They're going to tell us this is what we need to do from Australia in space, or this is the strengths that we think Australia has in space. That's all going to come out over the next year or so, and that's really exciting. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, obviously there's a bunch of sanctions happening right now for one of the previously major launch providers, and that's obviously constrained that for for global sort of launch. Uh, Adam, did you have a comment? Yeah, I think. I'm very happy, I'll kind of say finally, if I'm talking to the government, but I think it's great. <laughs> but I definitely want to, this is a defence, we have all our allies here. I think what it's really good is that we'll have capability to burden share. I think that is a very important concept. You know, I've talked to people from other foreign militaries and I've said, you know, if the bad guys take out our satellites, do you really think they're gonna stop at not taking out your launch sites? You know, all the launch sites I've seen have all these big tanks full of very ex explosive propellants. So I think if we have alternative launch sites in Australia, we have alternative launch vehicles in Australia, and we have alternative satellite capability that's totally interoperable, and there's no reason it can't be, it is a fantastic as asset for all of us to keep space safe. We have uh, just under three minutes left, and I had a cracker that I wanted to ask, man, but there's a couple of good ones up on the screen. Uh, David H., uh, this one is for man. Where do you need the Space Command to be in the next three to five years, given the rapid changes in the international strategic environment? 
Well, I've only got two years apparently, so um, I, I don't know about the three to five year mark, but in my two years, um, you know, we will be in operational command and we will be contributing to our allies in terms of capability and we will have a clear, a clear understanding and growth path for our workforce, which will be done in conjunction with the civil sector and the industry sector. So they're the three things that I think, you know, I could say that we will do in the, in the two years that I have uh, in Space Command. And the last question, and it says for all panel members, we've got two minutes, keep it, just, I'm just conscious of Adam Badcop over there, because I think uh, James incorrectly labelled the two people on this side. Uh, with recent discussions on the exchange of space tech and infrastructure capability mechanisms with the groups like AUKUS and QUAD, what would Australia wish to do to mitigate conflict in space avenues? For example, lack of comms of ASATs. I mean, from a, from a military perspective, that's uh, what the Combined Space Operations Initiative is all about. It's not AUKUS, it's not the QUAD, it's uh, the Combined Space Initiative. We are looking at responsible behaviours in space and then how we react to them as, as, a, as a group, as a group of people. Um, but there's also work going on in the UN as well too, Enrico, that you're, you've got the lead on. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the questions you get is why do you need a space command and why do you need a civil uh, agency? And we are working very closely together. You need a civil agency because there's international forums like UN Copius uh, that are civil forums that uh, need, really need to drive uh, the norms of behaviour in space that can contribute to, to peace in space. Uh, and we were fortunate to have, a, I think, a, a moderate, respected voice as, as a middle power, growing power in space. And, and so it's through those engagements uh, that that's the important role we're going to play. It's going to be by providing data and information to the region. Um, and I know I've got the time signal there, so there's my comment. <laughs> I've got nothing to say. Uh, I'd I, I say the first chair of the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space was an Australian, David Forbes Martin. Uh, we have had a long history of being a responsible space citizen and playing a really important role. Uh, in making sure that space is stable and that space can be successful. And I think, you know, with, with the developments that we're talking about now here today, with the stand-up of the Defence Space Command, we're going to be able to continue that tradition, both from a defence perspective, from a scientific perspective, um, but also from an international political perspective. Oh, well done. Look at that. Eight seconds to go. There's a big red clock for those that aren't aware. It's just sort of flashing away. So, uh, everybody, if you could join me in thanking our four wonderful Australians on the panel this morning. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being part of the Air and Space Power Centre's 2022 Air and Space Power Conference, which was proudly sponsored by principal sponsor Boeing, major sponsors L3 Harris, Rolls-Royce and Lockheed Martin. If you are looking to consume, contest or contribute to airspace power, please visit www.airpower.airforce.gov.au.